Hello everyone, and today we are starting a new series. Like 4 Minutes with Threads, it'll be an occasional series popping up now and then, and appropriately, it'll be called Pop. With every pop episode, we'll look at a different nuclear-themed pop song, and we are starting today with one from 1984. A great year, of course, for nuclear pop culture. And it's a song which isn't actually about nuclear war, but about an imminent nuclear disaster. It also has a very catchy tune, which you'll probably now be stuck with for the rest of the day, but you can't complain because it's a great song. That is Dancing with Tears in My Eyes by the band Ultravox. Released in May 1984, it got to number three in the UK charts. And yet, it's not the band's most famous song. That is probably the (laughs) even more catchy Vienna. The lead singer of Ultravox was Midjur. He was also part of Band Aid and played at the famous Live Aid concert. And he was the co-writer, along with Big Bob Geldof, of Do They Know It's Christmas. So even if you think you don't know Midjur, you probably do know Midjur. He was born in Cambuslang, which is a, a wee town on the outskirts of Glasgow, immediately next to the town where I was born, Rutherglen. Growing up, um, I knew Cambuslang as a fabled land lost in the mists across forbidden fields of toxic waste. Now, I'm really not kidding there. My high school, Trinity, had no playing fields as all the surrounding ground was poisoned land and it was fenced off with signs everywhere saying danger, toxic waste. And at lunchtime, uh, the bad boys in the school would leap the fences and run through the toxic waste fields because this was a shortcut to the chip shop at Campus Lang. The rest of us would make do with um, a cold roll and ham or some watery soup or some monster munch, but no, the bad boys, they must have chips and they were prepared to race across toxic waste to get them. So that's what Camber's Lang was to me, uh, a forbidden land of chips. You had to slay dragons and dash across the wastelands to reach it. But let's get back to the song. As I mentioned, uh, Dancing with Tears in My Eyes is not about nuclear war. According to the video, and I recommend you look it up on YouTube, it's an excellent video. It's one of those videos which tells a story. Well, according to the video, there is going to be an explosion at a nuclear power plant and it is going to be a whopper. So I'll tell the story according to the video. It opens in a nuclear power plant. There are lots of science bods and men in white coats. 
but we also see a uniformed guard watching them. So that suggests to me that this is perhaps a Soviet plant. We know that Chernobyl, for example, had KGB guys on the site, monitoring its building and then its operations. The camera lingers on this guy and he does exude a bit of menace, so so I assume that's a nod to it being a Soviet nuclear plant, and therefore a scary nuclear plant. But remember, this was made two years before Chernobyl. So if we are looking at a nuclear disaster in a Soviet nuclear plant, then obviously that's quite prophetic. But we'll come back to Chernobyl later. On with the story. Work in the nuclear plant is ticking along as usual. A couple of workmen actually look yawny and bored. One of them is drumming a pencil against his lip. One of them is flicking through some papers. Someone else is stretching in his chair. This all suggests it's the dead of night, which is actually another similarity with Chernobyl, which exploded at 1.30am. Suddenly, the screens start to flash red. They say, danger, reactor core overheat. The red lights are flashing, the men leap to their feet. Explosion imminent, says the screen. We leave the plant, and the rest of the video were with Midjur, back in the UK, we assume. He's driving home. Nothing scary going on, he's just a bloke going home to the wife. So the song is sung from his point of view. He's a man driving home to his wife and child. Remember, it's 1984, so if there is some terrible nuclear disaster looming in the Soviet Union, Midge has no way of knowing about it unless he switches on the radio. Although another indicator that something is wrong is um, if the streets suddenly filled with panicked, screaming people. And that's exactly what happens. Um, his car turns into a street and the street is jammed with people panicking, rushing, fleeing. Now, let me stop there. If we are looking at an imminent explosion in a Soviet plant, and if Midge is driving around in Britain then that's going to be one hell of an explosion to affect us directly here. But let's remember, this is a music video and not real life. So let's not get all, well, that wouldn't happen actually, because poetic license. And remember, with the Chernobyl, after all, the West didn't know about it instantly. We had to work it out for ourselves that something was amiss, and then finally prod the Soviets to admit it. We weren't all running in the streets, screaming that Chernobyl was going to blow. Nonetheless, there were concerns in Chernobyl at the time that the disaster could indeed trigger a further, greater, massive explosion. So, in theory, there could have been an explosion in Chernobyl which would have directly harmed us in Western Europe. I turn here to the book Midnight in Chernobyl by Adam Higginbottom, who explains the fears of a bigger, far more devastating explosion at Chernobyl. It's taken from the chapter called The China Syndrome. He writes that scientists on the scene at Chernobyl feared the so-called China Syndrome, 
the radioactive fuel, the burning radioactive fuel in a damaged reactor might get so hot and so uncontrollable that it will burn its way down through the foundations of the reactor, down into the soil, down into the water table, and in theory, keep on going, keep burning and burrowing its way down through the earth. Now that's hypothetical, of course, but at Chernobyl, the threat of a core meltdown was real. The threat of the material burning down and out into the soil and water table was real. Chernobyl, of course, sits by the Pripyat River, which feeds into the huge Dnieper River, which provides drinking water to, well, according to this book, 30 million people. And if it reached the Dnieper, it could then flow onwards into the Black Sea. This was a dreadful prospect. But there was a second possibility, even worse than that. I will quote directly from Midnight in Chernobyl here. But the second threat was even more immediate and frightening to contemplate than the poisoning of the water table. The molten fuel would reach the Pripyat and the Dnieper only if it escaped the foundations of the building. Before that happened, it would have to pass through the steam suppression pools, the flooded safety compartments beneath reactor number four. And some of the scientists feared that if the white-hot fuel made contact with the thousands of cubic metres of water held in the sealed compartments there, it would bring about a new steam explosion, orders of magnitude larger than the first. This blast could destroy not only what remained of Unit 4, but also the other three reactors, amounting to a gargantuan dirty bomb formed of more than 5,000 tonnes of intensely radioactive graphite and 500 tonnes of nuclear fuel, such an explosion could exterminate whatever remained alive inside the special zone and hurl enough fallout into the atmosphere to render a large swathe of Europe uninhabitable for a 100 years. So let's get back to our video. Med stops the car because the road is impassable. It's full of people running and panicking in that classic 80s disaster movie way. He obviously has no idea what's going on, but he turns to look in a shop window and it's full of TV screens broadcasting the warning, nuclear explosion imminent, stay indoors and await further information. The song's lyrics at this point uh, do make reference to the news going out on the radio. Uh, the lyrics are, The man on the wireless cries again, it's over, it's over. I suppose these days uh, the song might say the, the man with the Twitter account tweets again, it's over. But of course we've talked on this podcast before about modern ways of delivering a nuclear warning and of course we can assume it would be done via social media. But would you believe it? If the BBC, for example, a trustworthy, blue-ticked organisation, if they tweeted nuclear explosion imminent, would you believe it? Would you take appropriate action? Um, appropriate there, in inverted commas. Or would you think, well, it's a joke, or they've been hacked? Social media doesn't have the, the gravitas that, say, a newsreader wearing a black tie, speaking directly to the camera, would have, delivering the news to us that way. 
But here the song refers to the man on the wireless cries again, it's over, it's over. We've got the newsreader on the wireless, or, or perhaps just a DJ on the wireless, and we've got TV screens broadcasting the news flash. We've got TV and radio delivering the warning. We've got respected and trusted and traditional methods of uh, broadcast. A Twitter account, even one with a blue tick, or you might say especially one with a blue tick, perhaps couldn't be trusted, not in the same way. Now, of course, nuclear explosion imminent, you would expect that that would be accompanied by the nuclear siren, but the siren, of course, and the siren system was set up to detect an incoming missile, an incoming nuclear attack. And in this scenario, I know it's not real, it's only a music video, but in this scenario, there is no incoming missile to be detected and to trigger the sirens. It is, we think, some horrendous explosion which is going to happen on the continent in the Soviet Union and will be so massive that it will spread its way to Western Europe. But as I say, it's not real. It doesn't matter if that's not physically possible. We're just enjoying a good pop song and a haunting video. So the road is jammed. Our guy jumps out of the car, abandons it, and joins the crowds, running. He runs home. Everyone is frantic. Uh, Everyone's struggling to get home, I assume. Take shelter. One guy collapses on the pavement, and the only person who stops to help him is a priest. Okay, making it a bit obvious there that society has already disintegrated. But to be fair, the video was only four minutes long, so they need to get their message across fast. So, our guy makes it home. He and his wife embrace. As the song says, we drink to forget the coming storm. And we love to the sound of our favourite song. Over and over. Obviously Midge isn't impeded in any way by anxiety. Here's a clip from the song. So our couple are spending their last few minutes uh, drinking and dancing in the living room. And as they hold one another and shuffle sadly across the carpet, the TV in the background is still flashing red. Nuclear explosion imminent. That's a very creepy scene. Now, this is an 80s pop video. So naturally, it's about drinking, dancing, sex. Of course it is. And that's what many of us would probably turn to if the end was nigh. But (laughs) what makes me laugh is that our tipsy, horny couple, before their retreat to bed, they remember to pop their heads around the bedroom door of their daughter. Yes, they've got a terrified-looking kid tucked up in the next bedroom. So whilst they live up, their poor wee girl is left in her bedroom alone to face the nuclear holocaust. 
They both give her a sad and wistful look. And then they hop into bed together and pull a white sheet up over their heads. Of course, for decency's sake, the white sheet is pulled up and over their heads to imply they're, of course, having sex. And, of course, you're not allowed to broadcast that. But, of course, pulling the white sheet up and over their bodies is a very obvious symbol of death. The, the death that is imminent. And as they pull the sheets over their head, then comes the blast. The room suddenly lights up in a lurid white light and their bodies lie still under the white sheet. Now, it's a good song, of course, uh, very catchy, but I think part of the reason the song is so well remembered is because of that um, very haunting video. And of course, it's a video which tells a story. Um, you don't often get that these days. Well, not that I keep up with, with current pop music, but it seems to me that videos which tell a story are a thing of the 80s when the music video became a big deal. And um, I downloaded Midyear's autobiography, and this is what he had to say about the importance of the video. Videos were very important to Ultravox. Rather than just have a lovely sleeve, a piece of music, and leave the rest up to your head, video carried the whole concept into a new dimension. Once you make a video, that seals the image in the public's head for all time. He goes on to say, Ultravox saw video as the ultimate extension of writing a tune. We created the atmosphere for the lyrics, then the next step was to visualise it. Dancing with tears in my eyes was about a nuclear disaster. What you do after the four minute warning sounds. That's what we filmed. Dancing with a girl, pulling the sheet over your head, waiting for the end of the world, dust going everywhere. People couldn't understand what we were doing. Why we didn't make this fluffy video of us singing and dancing. His statement there that, um, that people couldn't understand them, that pops up in a few reviews I found of the song. Such as this one from the Daily Record in New Jersey. I'll read that to you. Synthesizers, drum computers, rock videos. Ultravox were onto them all years ago when most of the acts on the current MTV playlist were still pumping gas. But these Britons have never caught on in the US the way infinitely stupider bands have. And Lament suggests why. Lament is the name of the album from which Dancing With Tears In My Eyes comes. The review goes on, few records can boast the detail of this one. These guys never play a conventional instrumental line. Instead, they build up layers of orchestration, mixing electronic instruments with real ones. But their machine-like precision, the inhuman intricacy of their musical constructions, with synthetic bass drum beats ricocheting between speakers faster than any real drummer could move a foot, makes it impossible to warm up to them. Even a song as potentially passionate as Dancing With Tears My Eyes 
with a chorus that descends giddily from a lofty peak, comes off as less than thrilling. Much of the blame rests with mid-year singing, which expresses intellect, but not emotion. Okay. The Quad City Times from Iowa um, also reviews them as being very complicated, but they're far more complimentary. They say of the album, with voicings and passages reminiscent of Wagnerian opera, nifty synthesizer sounds, and a relentlessly precise beat that's meant to appeal to the stormtrooper in you, one can see that these young popmeisters are talented, though perhaps a bit misguided. Of the multitude of bands that writhe and celebrate their emotional retardedness, Ultravox does it with more style and imagination than any other, brackets except Roxy Music. So these reviews seem to be having a, a, if you read between the lines, you lads are too clever for your own good. (laughs) So that's what um, some American reviews were saying. If we go back to Scotland, where of course Mid-Year is from, (laughs) and we look at the the Irvine Herald and Kerwinning Chronicle, they um, they slap the band down. We often see that um, in Scotland or in other small countries. It's known as tall poppy syndrome. If someone uh, does well or gets too big for their boots, everyone else back home is keen to pull them back down to size. Uh, the way you express that in Scotland is, uh, I kent your father, which means I knew your, your father. So um, you might go off and become a great superstar, uh, known all around the world, but there'll still be someone back in, in this case, Irvin or Co-Winning, who'll say, I, I can't your father, as in, I know where you come from, I remember you, I've seen your dads, you know, working down the mines or whatever. I know what your roots are, I can't your father. So um, there's a bit of I can't your father going on here. The Irvin Herald and Co-Winning Chronicle just say, that their uh, music columnist says, I was told I never give Ultravox a mention in this column. Okay, with Dancing with Tears in My Eyes, I have in fact just mentioned the latest release of Ultravox. That's it. (laughs) Well, putting aside music critics, the fact is the song did very well. Getting to number three in Britain. And bear in mind, it was up against strong competition. I mean, my God, if you look at the charts for May and June of 1984, it was full of tremendous stuff and it made me feel a bit sad and sentimental because I read the names of the the bands and I thought, music today is rubbish, isn't it? And then I thought, oh God, that's what everyone says when they get older. But come on, look who were in the charts alongside Ultravox. When they broke into the top ten with Dancing with Tears in My Eyes, they were sharing it with Duran Duran, The Smiths, Wham and Queen, I Want to Break Free. And as they fell back to number six, who had swooped into number one? Well, a favourite nuclear war single of mine, and of many of us, I assume, Two Tribes by Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Now, (laughs) I know that everyone says this about their own era, but... Wasn't early 80s music just brilliant? And so now I feel old. I feel like my dad um, lecturing me when I was young about the glory days of the 70s and 
How wee dafties at me will never understand T-Rex and Bowie and The Clash and The Stones. And now here I am growing about how great 80s music was. So I hope you liked the first of our pop episodes. I'll be doing these um, every now and then, looking at nuclear-themed pop music. And if there's a particular song you want me to cover, then let me know. Let me thank my newest patrons, John Benack, Gary Guit, Robin Weston, Heather Mills-Legg, and thank you to Chaz and Melissa for increasing their monthly pledges. Uh, Melissa and John, I have now sent you a link through Patreon to join our Discord chat group. Yeah, you don't have to, of course, but it's there if you want to join us and chat all things nuclear war. And of course, you can pop over there and let us know what your favourite nuclear war pop songs are and hopefully we can cover them in time on the podcast. So if you want to join my Patreon, uh, please do take a look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And remember that my book is now available to pre-order. You can get it online, uh, Amazon, Waterstones, any of the big bookshops. It's called Attack Warning Red, How Britain Prepared for Nuclear War, by me, Julie McDowell. And I'd be very grateful if, you, if you'd consider pre-ordering it. And thank you to everyone who has. So thank you for listening, and I'll be back next Monday with another episode. <laughs> <laughs>